a year and a half into us being in business, we got the phone call that changed everything. <laughs> what happened is that the Duchess of Sussex, Meghan Markle, had been gifted our lattes. She really loved the story and she loved the product. Hello and welcome to Shopify Masters, the podcast powered by Shopify, your companion for starting and building a business. I'm Shwang Estershan. And like many of us, Hannah Mendoza cherishes her daily rituals. From making a hot pot of coffee to whisking up some matcha, Hannah wondered if there's a way to add some more functional benefits to her beverages. Hannah created Clever Blends, a line of oat milk-based super lattes designed to improve your mood, energy, digestion, brain health, and so much more. Initially started out as a pop-up beverage bar, Clever Blends has grown into an international brand with organic growth and counts Oprah as a fan. Hannah is here to share how she took her daily rituals and turned them into a successful beverage business. Hannah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Shay. I'm very happy to be here. So I think we all have our different rituals, but you wanted to actually make it more beneficial and functional. So how did you go about creating your initial recipes? The initial recipes were really inspired by, I think, habits that most of us have, which are caffeinating every day and doing that either through drinking black coffee or going to the coffee shop and getting a latte that's so delicious, but doesn't really have any long-term health benefits. There's often added sugar. And, you know, i probably not overstating it to say that we are in a very anxious, over-caffeinated, high-stress moment as a culture and as a society. And the way that we energize and the way that we caffeinate does have a direct correlation to that. And so the way that we started thinking about this was taking different mushrooms and herbs and adaptogens, you know, that are in, have benefits for our stress levels, for our sleep, for our mood. And those are informed both by science and also by thousands of years of traditional use and incorporating them into the most ubiquitous ritual that we have as humans, which is our coffee and tea ritual every day, which is so beloved. So for a lot of people, taking time out of that day to take a supplement. It can be really hard. We have enough on our plates to remember to do that on a daily basis. And so incorporating them into a behavior that we already have was an incredibly easeful way to get these different functional ingredients into our lives. So that was how we approached formulation. I mean, we, as you said, we trialed all of these concepts at this pop-up coffee and tea bar. We would travel around the world. We would make these incredibly creative takes on traditional you know, lattes, coffee and tea drinks um, that people just fell in love with. And the big issue for us was it just wasn't scalable. People adored these drinks. They said they felt less anxious, less jittery. They felt less stressed. But at the same time, asking someone to combine 15 different ingredients when they have a screaming child on their hip or they have to, to go to that job at, you know, 7.30 in the morning is just incredibly unapproachable. And so we wanted to make that feeling hyper accessible and approachable to people. And we chose instant as a form factor, which is very not sexy. Just to name that, it's this stale industry, this form factor that hasn't been kind of updated since the 80s. It has a terrible reputation, but Within that, there was this amazing opportunity to do something that hadn't been done before and create a 
coffee shop quality, very high end instant drink experience because that would be what is most, most approachable to people. So we knew it needed to be instant. And we also knew it had to be good enough that we'd be proud to serve it at our coffee and tea bar. So it took a year. It took a year of me in my kitchen surrounded by a hundred different jars and bags of different ingredients and just really trying to nail that barista quality and texture while also having these incredible functional ingredients in. We made it in the end and we did something that hadn't been done before in the instant industry. And yeah, I'm very proud of where we ended up and it took a while. And you mentioned the traveling coffee bar that initially started the business. It wasn't scalable, but I imagine it was a very enriching experience where you got a lot of interactions face-to-face and a lot of feedback. So tell us about the experience of having a beverage tour as a new business owner and the learnings you had from that experience. Firstly, it was a lot of fun. (laughs) And especially in the first six months of business when there's not there's not a lot of pressure for you to grow at a particular rate, especially when you're self-funded, I wouldn't take back the experience for the world. It was incredible. And we got to go to so many amazing places and there's really no replacement for face-to-face interactions and feedback that allow you to iterate so much smarter on the concept. I mean, we could be at an event and we could have 300 people try a recipe over and over and over again. And then we would go home, we would bring up our formulation sheets, we would edit, we would go to the next event. And I think as a larger company, you could pay a lot of money for that level of first party data and customer feedback. And to get it face-to-face was so invaluable. And the people that we met in those early days as having a coffee and tea bar that we got to meet face-to-face and they got to hear the story and why we cared so deeply about creating these products. A lot of those customers are still with us today and some of our most evangelical, passionate advocates who are probably going to follow us for a long time to come. Amazing. And you mentioned those early days of having hundreds of jars and different ingredients in your kitchen. I imagine taking your personal recipes into production is also a very big step and something that business owners are afraid of. So can you tell us about the process of scaling and how you handle that first production run? Well, (laughs) it was a journey. We self-produced, we made all of our own product for the first year and a half of being in business. And what that looked like, A, was getting very intimate and familiar with how to make the product best. And I'm so grateful that we had that knowledge before we started working with any other partners. But just to be real, there was just two of us, my co-founder and I, at that point, and we would be on our computers during the week. We'd be building our website. We would be doing all the digital side of the business we would be running events on the weekend because we didn't have marketing budget. We were bootstrapped at that point. And so events were the way that we actually had revenue coming in. And then the actual production of the product happened at night. So we would finish, close up our computers at five or six, and we would go to this shared commercial kitchen that we had. And it would be me and my co-founder. And we would be there till two in the morning, some nights, physically making blending, filling bags. <laughs> and again, would not take that back for the world. It was such, <laughs> just such a cornerstone experience where it tested 
a level of commitment, it really pushed that level of commitment. And so, you know, when it was two in the morning and you know you had to get up the next day and run email campaigns and build the website, you you knew that you were in at that point. So we were lucky in that before Clever, I came from a CPG background. I, I was the first employee at this really incredible brand that was doing direct sourcing from farmers who were growing superfoods and herbs using regenerative and permaculture-informed farming all around the world. And so I did have a background in food, and of course that helped. But in terms of figuring out how to run that first production run, we really resourced ourselves with other people in the industry by just asking the dumb questions at the beginning. And I'm so grateful that we didn't just push through and try and figure things out ourselves because it would have been highly inefficient to do so. So we just, we made phone calls. We asked people, how do I go about setting up, you know, certifications and health and safety stuff and just really pulling in as many knowledgeable people that we could to make sure we were doing it right. And those were some really crucial experiences that helped you to scale and also expand. So when you were ready for expanding into different flavors and also new products, how did you go about understanding what is the next product to develop and what is the complementary flavors that you needed to have? The simplest answer to that is we asked our customers. It can be very easy to be myopic when you're so close to the business and you're so close to the product and you have so much passion that's deeply personal around different products or different formulations. And quite early on, I learned to set that aside and instead really use our customer base as a resource and kind of bring them in almost to our product development process and say, hey, we are here to serve you. We're here to help you show up a little easier to the undeniably difficult job of being a human being. And what can we actually do to help that? What are your biggest health and wellness concerns? Where do you need help? Is it stress? Is it energy? Is it sleep? And then with the products that you have, where can we improve? How do you feel about the flavors? And doing deep customer research and letting that be the Bible uh, that informed everything that came after that from a product development standpoint. And we still do that very regularly. And I, I wouldn't do it any other way. It sounds like much of your initial journey and also all aspects of the business, you know, from making those beverages in the cafe to actually making items when it's in the initial days of production, you were very hands-on. And also you were kind of similar to that in your financial journey as well. You invested in the business early on and you bootstrapped for a while. Tell us about the financial side of building the business and what you initially invested in. Of course, there's so many ways to go about funding a business and there is no playbook, there's no right way or wrong way. For us, it was just a product of circumstance that we weren't in a place where even knowing how to raise outside funding was was in my vocabulary yet. And so we bootstrapped right from the beginning. You know, my co-founder and I both put in pretty small amount of money. What I'm really grateful for, given that that was the way that we started the business, is It forced us to learn capital efficiency from the very beginning. And I think if we'd have gone and raised money out the gate, we would have potentially skipped over that very critical skill building and focusing on business fundamentals and learning how to create organic momentum without necessarily a big marketing budget, without a team. 
It makes you product obsessive. It makes you customer obsessive. So yeah, for the first year and a half, we were completely bootstrapped, just small amount for my co-founder and I. And we did have a pretty incredible inflection point a year and a half into us being in business. We got the phone call that changed everything. <laughs> what happened is that the Duchess of Sussex, Meghan Markle, had been gifted our lattes and really fallen in love with the product line, with our ethos. We're a very mission-driven brand, and she really loved the story and she loved the product. And what came from that was happened very organically, but she ended up coming on board as our first investor and advisor and is still an amazing, very ardent advocate for the brand to date. And so that was huge for us. It, it really did change everything. It's not something that I think you can ever go out and seek. It's, it was a pinch me moment, an absolute dream. <laughs> and she's been incredible to work with and just really aligned with our values. And so from a funding perspective, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that. It was absolutely so helpful for us with the stage of business that we were at. And so then even after that, that was two years ago now, we're in the middle of raising our Series A. And so still, you know, with with that initial fundraise that came from Megan, we have also been able to make that last for, for two years, over two years. And so again, taking that business fundamental capital efficiency skill that we built at the beginning and even post our Series A fundraise, we're going to continue, especially in the current economic environment, operating in a similar way. You know, not chasing growth at all costs, really focusing on efficiency, focusing on profitability and the business fundamentals of people and product that are so huge. I'm very excited to dive deeper into your investment journey and, and hear about Meghan Markle's story. Uh, but I think what's amazing about that is she did discover Clever organically. And I think that's a testament to how well you build products as well as the brand. So for founders who are in similar journeys, maybe they only have a couple thousand dollars initially. What do you think are important areas that they invest in to make sure their storytelling, their products, their brand are aligned um, and it's able to be discovered by others? One of the first hires that we made, which is unusual, I think, was we brought on a head of community and partnerships. And at the beginning, she wasn't a head of community and partnerships. She was freelancing for us and, and working in a, a very part-time capacity. Because we knew we didn't have a big advertising budget at the beginning, what did feel within reach for us was physically getting the product into people's hands and knowing, feeling confident enough that we created a really phenomenal product that we knew people would share it. And that was one of the best decisions that we made, building that organic momentum through actually just driving trial and getting people excited about this product, but in a pretty low cost, organic way. Um, I think if you feel confident that your product is something that people are organically gonna want to share about, I would invest in, in getting it into people's hands early on in that way. We've, we've still never, paid for any influencer programs or anything like that. We still do everything organically. But what we do do is we make sure that we really take care of our community and we don't treat them as a transactional relationship. And those things don't have to cost a lot. It's more about the attitude that you bring to that relationship. And so, yeah, I think there are things you can invest in early on and 
of course, it's not free to give out your product. There's a cost associated with that. But then there's also things that don't cost money that are nuanced about how do you approach those relationships and that doesn't cost you any more. And another thing that doesn't cost you any money, but is definitely worth focusing on is making sure you have a really compelling way to tell your story. Because at the beginning, the biggest asset you have is your passion. It's your story. It's what got you to where you are taking this leap that most people will never take in their lives. And so becoming eloquent at communicating that and communicating that is also doesn't cost you anything, but something I would definitely spend a lot of time thinking about in the early days. And I think the two go hand in hand. Once someone samples your product, they want to know more about you. So the story and the product really go together. I'm chatting with Hannah Mendoza, the co-founder and CEO of Clever Blends. So going back to the fundraising journey, Meghan Markle comes on as an investor and advisor, and that also parlays to bigger exposure. So tell us more about the chapters following that in your investment journey. <laughs> One of probably the wildest moments in the journey since then was a, a couple of days after the, the partnership was announced. It was a Sunday night. My co-founder and I were in separate places. He was in our commercial kitchen and he was making the product because we were still doing that at that point. And I was live editing a website, which I would never recommend, especially on a Shopify podcast. Don't do that. But at that point, we didn't have a dev team. We built our website. And so I was in there, I was editing things, editing copy and photos, and it was a Sunday night. And we got this notification that came through to our Instagram that said, Oprah has tagged you in a feed post. Um, <laughs> and I FaceTimed my co-founder, Raj, and I said, you need to look at your phone right now. We didn't know this was going to happen, but Megan has been so incredible about sharing our product and she did share it with Oprah and Oprah made a, a golden latte on her Instagram, which is something that <laughs> changed also everything for us overnight. And it was just such a flagship moment for me because there was really just two, three of us at that point. And Roger was mopping the floors in our commercial kitchen and I was deep in the website when we went from five visitors on the website to 5,000 visitors in a matter of two minutes. That moment catalyzed a deep assessment of every single system that we had, every single email flow, how our operations were set up. We still fulfill all our product in-house. And so our entire fulfillment team, we had to rip everything apart and start again with an up-leveled version of what was there before. And I'm so grateful that we had that catalyst. And that was two years ago now. That was really the start of us up-leveling as a business um, and as a brand and just growing up in a way that was so healthy and useful. And now we have an incredibly dialed operation, but it didn't come without things breaking and falling apart first. What a magical moment. I was actually just going to say, like, it's so exciting on the surface, but I know that you and your co-founder also probably had a crazy behind the scenes, like trying to get everything ready to actually handle the orders. How do you even prepare yourself for that influx of orders and attention to make sure like operationally you can actually get those orders to those new customers? <laughs> well, we didn't actually prepare for this because we didn't know what was going to happen. So it was most, mostly a post-event scramble. You're inevitably going to run out of stock. And we did. We were sold out for 
think six weeks more or less. And so then communications become really important. How do you uh, expectation set with customers? How do you message this so that it's not a deterrent to people coming to the website? Yeah, it was mostly an after the fact strategic situation. <laughs> it also comes down to team. All of a sudden your team's workload went from you know, three out of 10 to 20 out of 10. And so how do you make sure that people are taken care of when there is a massive swing in how much pressure impacts every single area of the business within your team? And so making sure that you kind of take care of your people first, because if you don't take care of your people first, then everything's going to fall apart. And it's putting in the time and grinding and long days to, to try and make sure that you have everything sorted, but it's, it's so worth it. I don't mean to be nebulous in the answer. It's just there's so many things that went into us handling that because it touched every single function of the business. And I think another area that we don't often talk about is this is a great point for acquiring new customers. And once you have these new customers, how did you nurture the relationship later on? Because this is a product that people repurchase often. So how did you manage those accounts, understand the data and just like maintain the relationship? We have a very deeply personal product. And what I mean by that is we're not a commodity. And for us, building culture within the brand is huge. We of course, we make a product, but we also make self-care tools uh, so people can you know, show up better to their lives. And that's very intimate. You know, we're maybe the first thing someone drinks in the morning or the last thing that they drink at night. And we have this kind of opportunity or requirement, I guess, to transcend our product line and to actually you know, have an internal culture and value system that we're communicating to our customers so they can feel good about supporting us in turn. And so I think a lot of what came after those big moments was making sure that the people who supported us knew what we were about, what we cared about, what our mission was, what our values were, and not just blasting them with transactional emails or promotional emails. Being a resource and making sure that a large proportion of the communications, you know, from a CRM and, and retention perspective that went out provided value beyond asking the customer to buy something from us. And that's a really core part of the way that we interact with customers that we will always hold very, very dear to us. And people respond incredibly well to, you know, we're a very mission driven company. We sustainable and ethical sourcing is huge for us. It's the background that I came from and something that I brought into Clever. We have a, a really strong give back program where we donate to food justice organizations, um, mostly small grassroots organizations. That's something that's very near and dear to us. And just making sure that customers know that we're doing the work to show up within the food system and within like corporate culture in a way that is values aligned so they can feel good about continuing also to support us. That's been really huge. And it's also, yeah, it's important to me to kind of take a stand for the way that businesses and brands show up these days by communicating those things. So that's one. I think just creating a culture beyond being a commodity and asking people to purchase from you. And then the second thing is innovation. And for us, you know, we've still never outsourced any of our product development. We do everything in-house. We have a test kitchen here in Santa Barbara in our office. And we, in terms of retention and keeping people excited, we make sure to keep asking them what they want to see from us. And then we do a lot of product innovation, a lot of new products, and really try and push the edge of 
what's possible from a product perspective and and make things that are unique and that people can't get anywhere else. And I think from a retention perspective, we've just found that giving people reasons to come back and try these new experimental flavors that we're creating or new functions, like we brought out a sleep time latte in the middle of last year, and it was something that didn't exist. You couldn't get and still can't really get anything like that. And so keeping things exciting for your customers and making sure you kind of are on that cutting edge of innovation has been huge for us as well. Yeah. And I think you're growing with your customers as well. I think sleep, especially during the pandemic, is something a lot of people focused on. So you mentioned that you're actually raising your Series A and you're reaching out to different investors going through pitching. What advice do you have for founders who are going through this chapter of fundraising? My biggest piece of advice would be that there's no prizes in rewriting the playbook from the ground up. I would highly recommend finding one or two people that can advise you along the way who don't have a stake in the actual fundraise. So kind of neutral parties who you can ask questions that you might be uh, reticent to ask to people that do have a stake in that. And for me, having even a couple people who I can call and say, hey, I'm unsure how to approach this situation that's arising, or I'm not sure if this really belongs in my pitch deck or if this angle is really going to resonate. Can I test it out on you? Can I practice my pitch with you? Um, I have no idea about, you know, how to get in contact with this person or that person. It's so much more efficient <laughs> than trying to make it up yourself and you're going to get better results that way. And most of the time people really want to help. So before even going into... <laughs> The, the nuts and bolts of fundraising, I would really just make sure you have a couple advocates who are willing for you to, you know, call them on those days where you're feeling confused or you're feeling overwhelmed or you're unsure of how to go about something. It was game changing for me. Awesome. Amazing advice. I'm chatting with Hannah Mendoza, the CEO and co-founder of Clever Blends. I hope you're enjoying our conversation. And if you haven't already, please subscribe or follow Shopify Masters wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review or feedback for the show. Thanks. So you mentioned that momentous moment where Oprah did posts about Clever and you were actually live editing the website. You definitely change the site a great deal. Are there any tools or services that you've really enjoyed over the years that have helped to enhance customer experience online and just really take the website to the next level? Currently, things in our tech stack that I think bring a ton of value. We use a platform called Disco, which allows for post-purchase cross-selling with other aligned brands. That's been really fun to use. We use Gorgeous for customer service, which has been Amazing. There's a, a company that we're about to start using, a plugin called IntelliGems, which allows you to do intelligent price testing and model out impact on uh, profitability and conversion rate. I think that's an in incredibly useful tool, especially right now, as a lot of brands are considering price increases to use a data-informed approach to making decisions. It also allows you to test a bunch of other stuff too outside of pricing, but I would definitely recommend checking that one out. And um, for subscriptions where we are using Retection, which is kind of more of a new up and coming subscription provider, but we are really enjoying using them so far. There's a really great like, user interface, UX, and it allows you to do a lot of dynamic testing on different subscription offers and incentives along the way. 
In addition to the online store, you also have great partnerships with cafes and retailers. Any advice you have for those who are wishing to get into a retailer? How do you establish and nurture those relationships? It's easy to get starry-eyed when a retailer reaches out to you, especially if it's a bigger retailer. The first piece of advice I would give is to really assess if now is the moment for you as a business to go into that channel because it's it's so tempting to want to say yes to everything. It's the hardest thing as a founder to turn down an opportunity. Whole Foods reached out to us a couple of years ago and I knew that wasn't the moment for us to go into Whole Foods. I wanted to get to at least 100,000 DTC customers so we could bring in the brand equity and customers and um, evangelism to support a big retail rollout before we took that step. But it was so hard to say no to that. And I'm really glad that we did because you only get one shot at a lot of retail relationships. And so my first piece of advice would just be think critically about timing and don't say yes to everything. And if you can build momentum outside of that retail channel before going into retail, it's going to put you in a much stronger position when it does come to rolling out into retail. That's my main advice there. I mean, it can be incredibly powerful, obviously, from a visibility perspective. And smaller accounts, you don't necessarily need to think so critically about. But um, every channel you add is going to add complexity and add additional work for your team. And so think about your bandwidth and think about how much capacity you have and make sure that's where you want to put your energy. But I'm also biased because we built our business DTC first with retail as something that we're really just starting to explore now. I think that's extremely interesting and also very important to note because saying no is so hard because you're looking after the wellness of the business. And I kind of in relation to that business has grown so much and it's based on wellness. How are you looking after your own wellness as you're taking on so much and handling like all of these bigger projects? It's very difficult. I will just say that I'm not here to paint a rosy picture of um, what it takes to, to grow a brand. It's incredibly difficult to shut work out. It's hard for me sometimes to remember who I am outside of my work persona and my context here and forcibly reminding myself of the parts of my personality that are not clever related has been very critical to staying balanced. But it's hard because there's always more that you can be doing. And I think you have to learn when to shut that voice down and say, actually, the best thing for me and my business is for me to take this weekend or to go on this hike. And you know, especially in hustle culture, there can be a voice that comes in and says, oh, you're going to go on a cute little walk? That's cute. And it's like, no, go take that hike and you might do the best thinking you've done in weeks. And so I think one of the hardest things for me has been the temptation to get very myopic with a to-do list with your asana. And it's been so critical to remember to carve out time to step back from being in the soup of what you're doing and have blue sky thinking time that you stick to kind of without exception. And I found that doing that and actually scheduling that ironically has been key to make sure that I'm not being myopic with the way that the business is going and I'm able to step back and get context and think at a higher level about who we are, where we're going and what the vision is. But it's difficult. 
For sure. And thank you for all the advice and being so candid with us. We have to wrap up by asking you what's next for Clever and if there's any projects you can share with us. We (laughs) we have a, a big year with big dreams ahead of us. There's a lot of very exciting product development stuff that's in the works. There's some potential retail partnerships coming down the line. We're going to be growing our team this year and I'm very excited for what's to come. Thanks so much for being here, Hannah. Thank you so much, Ryan. That's Hannah Mendoza from Clever Blends. And thank you for joining us on Shopify Masters. Our show is produced by Megan Coyle and Gogo Zoger. Our engineers are Matt Schwartz and Miku Betlam. Benjamin Gottlieb is our supervising producer. And I'm Shwang Estersham. And we'll see you next time. 